chapter 2 and beginning at verse 14. Paul writes, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved, and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Well, it really is uh, lovely to be with you here to uh, have this day of Bible teaching together. Uh, as I said, I'm always happy to be back here in Tasmania and very happy to find clusters of people like this who just want to hear God's word. I'm utterly convinced that the best way to build people up in the faith, to strengthen them for serving the Lord, is to teach them the Bible. God's word gives us all that we need for life and godliness, and in our busy lives it's good, isn't it, to just slow down and pour over the scriptures and let them feed our souls. So that's the plan today. You'll notice that I, um, in these three talks, am ignoring chapter divisions, and often when you read the Bible that's what you need to do. The chapter divisions are not inspired, the little headings are not inspired, and so we have to grab the units of scripture that makes sense. And the first unit here uh, is the section beginning really at verse 14 of chapter 2 and flowing through into the beginning of chapter 3. One of the things I find myself doing repeatedly is picking the brains of people who know more about ministry and more about Christian life than I do. I love it when I have opportunity to sit down with someone experienced in ministry, another principal, a lecturer, a pastor, or just a, a godly, experienced believer, and pick their brains. Love to ply them with questions about uh, how they use their time, um, how they structure their prayer life, how they deal with the hard times in ministry how they balance ministry against family and all this kind of stuff. It's so helpful to pick the brains of people who know more about ministry and more about Christian life than you do. You know what I'd really love is to be able to have an hour or two with the Apostle Paul. Wouldn't it be great to be able to go out to coffee with Paul and pick his brains? 
It would be fantastic because I think in the whole history of Christianity there, there's been no person with greater passion and drive and enthusiasm for the work of the gospel. No one who has had a greater influence on Christianity apart from Jesus Christ himself than the Apostle Paul. No one who could teach us more about endurance and perseverance and vigour in the work of the gospel. Well, unfortunately, I can't do coffee with Paul. Maybe in the age to come we will be able to, uh, which will be wonderful, and there might be quite a queue of us there, but um, the celestial Gloria genes. Uh, but for now, what we can do is pour over what he wrote about ministry. And we're going to do that today. For a couple of hours, really, we're going to reflect on what he said about ministry. And in this way, we really have opportunity to pick his brains. In fact, it's better than that because what he writes here is inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we have God-given insight into the work of the ministry, that of serving the Lord. As Paul writes here, he's really on the back foot. He's writing into a context in the Corinthian church that's been very, very difficult for him. This was the church that caused him the most grief. And now false teachers have come into that church. They've claimed a certain superiority in ministry. And Paul is cast back to having to defend himself and defend his ministry amongst the Corinthians. Uh, up until this point, he's defended his travel plans. He's defended uh, the reason for not having been able to get back to them as he'd intended. And so leading up to this in the earlier part of chapter 1 and chapter 2, you have his various movements and his travel plans. And the, the final travel plan that he's mentioned just before the passage we're taking up is that he'd, he'd failed to connect with Titus in Troas. Now he says that in chapter 2 verse 13, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there so I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Now at that point, Paul kind of cuts his travel plans and he begins a digression. Uh, the next several chapters are really one long sidetrack that's very encouraging for those of us who preach or teach and spend most of our time in sidetracks. Paul loves to do the same as well. And so his sidetrack, his digression, begins at chapter 2 verse 14 and continues right through into chapter 7. In fact, if, if you have a Bible in front of you, you inflict to chapter 7 verse 5, you'll see that he says there, for when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at a return. He, he's back to talking about Macedonia, which is where he'd cut off at chapter 2, verse 13. He's going to continue his travel story, but everything in between is, is a digression. But it's a marvellous digression. It's a digression where he bears his soul, where he speaks about the realities of new covenant ministry. That's the phrase that he uses uh, in this passage, New Covenant Ministry. We might more readily today call it Gospel Ministry. Ministering, serving the cause of the Gospel of the New Covenant that has been uh, formed 
in the blood of Christ. And so he opens up here realities of of what it's like to be engaged in the work of the gospel, what it's like to serve in the church, what it's like to be serious about mission, what it's like to preach the gospel. Now you and I are not apostles. We are not in the same place as Paul. But because he's talking about realities of new covenant ministry, we will find echoes of what he's talking about in his life in our lives. I take it, and I'm going to be speaking with the assumption today, that every Christian person is called to ministry. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is called to serve God with the gifts and the abilities, the time and the opportunities that they have. And we're all called to be new covenant ministers. That is, we're called to proclaim and spread the the message of Jesus Christ crucified, his bloodshed for the cancelling of our sins and the bringing of us into a relationship with God. All of us, every single one of you here who believes in Jesus is called to be a minister of the new covenant. You might do it in Sunday school. You might do it uh, teaching a little class. You might do it as an elder. You might do it sharing the gospel over your fence with a neighbour. Wherever the Lord has placed you and with whatever gifts he's given you, there's, there's a sense in which you are a new covenant minister. And in those roles and situations in which the Lord has put you, you need to know some of the realities that Paul speaks of here. Let's look at his perspective. The first thing is that new covenant, gospel ministry, may look like a very strange kind of triumph. It may look like a very strange kind of triumph. Look at verse 14. He's just been recounting all the things going wrong with these travel plans and various opponents and and, uh, earlier in chapter 1 he's talked about trouble in Asia, terrible sufferings in Asia. Then he says, verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Just a marvellous, exuberant praise of God. Look, there's all this trouble around. There are plans upset There's suffering, there's persecution, but thanks be to God, he leads us in triumphal procession. You you need to picture uh, a Roman commander coming back from battle, victorious over his enemies. And in the streets of Rome, there's a parade and the the captain of the army goes at the front and he has his, his, his lead soldiers with him. And they march through the streets of Rome and the crowds are there and they cheer and they rejoice and at the back of the procession there are the captives in chains being led to the arena perhaps where they will be made a public spectacle and lose their lives to the cheers of the crowd. That's the picture we should have in our mind. It's it's kind of the ancient equivalent of uh, a footy team winning the AFL and going back to their hometown, like Geelong, a couple of years ago. And, you know, Geelong just exploded with excitement and passion when the Cats won the footy. And and there are these great 
processions down the main street, ticker tape parades and all the sort of thing. And that, that's the kind of picture that you should have in your mind, a public happy celebration. Now, when I first read this, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession, I kind of assumed that Paul was to be pictured at the front of this procession as one of those being cheered on as a hero and a victim. But you know, the word that he uses here for being led in triumphal procession, the word is never used for those who are at the front of the procession. The word being led in triumphal procession is always used for the captives at the back. It's always used for those who are being led to death. That really changes the picture, doesn't it? Paul's boast seems to be this. He is a captive in Christ's triumphal procession. He has been conquered by Christ and he is now led in Christ's victory parade as a man condemned to die. The honour, the glory is Christ's and by implication it's not Paul's. And so that's why his life often looks like a series of disasters. Terrible persecutions in Asia. Travel plans that don't work out. Can't even connect with Titus in Troas. Grief and anguish from the Corinthians who are opposing him. False teachers who are rising up and undermining him. It's, it's really a catalogue of woe because the victory, the triumph is not his. He is a captive in the train. Jesus is the victor. You find the same imagery in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me just read verse 9 of that chapter to you. He says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. There it is. It's very explicit, isn't it? He says, it feels to us, apostles, whether men at the end of the procession condemned to die in the arena. The astounding thing, friends, is this. Paul is happy to be there. He praises God. Thanks be to God. We are led as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Hardship, trial, accusation, persecution, disappointment. So what? Christ is the victor. Christ has triumphed. Christ will be honoured and glorified. How can he rejoice? when he's struggling and suffering and finding it difficult in so many ways. I like to think of it this way. Paul Tripp, uh, who's written in the area of counselling, tells a a lovely little story in one of his books. He recounts the fact that um, at one stage in his ministry he he actually became a kindergarten teacher. And uh, while he was teaching in the kindergarten, one of the mothers 
uh, of the children arranged to put on a birthday party for uh, one of the little girls in the kindergarten. And so on the given day they arrived there and the, the table was beautifully laid and there were balloons and all sorts of party things around and it was pretty and pink and uh, the, the chairs were all around the table and, and at each chair there was a little party bag of goodies for each of the kids except at the head of the table where the party girl was seated. There was just this massive pile of presents. And uh, Tripp tells of how at the opposite end there was a little boy and he describes it like this. At the far end of the table sat Johnny. It's always Johnny, isn't it? I don't know why it's always Johnny. Johnny kept doing the same thing over and over. He would look at his little bag and then he'd look up at the birthday girl's mountain of gifts, fold his arms, stick out his lip and let out an audible (laughs) Each time the look on his face got more ugly and his humphing more audible. Before long he'd become the centre of attention and was well on his way to spoiling the party. Then one of the mothers walked over and knelt beside him. She turned his chair so that Johnny was looking directly into her face and she spoke these profound words. Johnny, it's not your party. Johnny, it's not your party. And brothers and sisters, it's not your party either. It's Christ's. The Christian life and Christian ministry is about the triumph of Jesus Christ. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ. It's about the honour of Jesus Christ. And it's not your party. We can so easily want it to be our party. We can want Christian life to be rewarding for us. We want it to be easy. We want it to be fun. We want it to be successful. We want to be appreciated. We feel hard done by when people don't notice us. We easily forget that New Covenant ministry is a strange kind of triumph. It's it's not our triumph. It's not our party. It's Christ's. That perspective really deals a death blow to our need to be constantly talking about what we have done and how well it's going. I don't know how it is in your circles, but... I think it's very easy for Christians to be pretty competitive when they get together. You know, it's easy for ministers and pastors to be competitive when they get together. We, we want to be talking about growing churches, about, about how you know, things have been going well and people are being saved and we've got this new program. And Paul doesn't seem to do that. Paul repeatedly talks about all the things that are going wrong. 
He gives us great catalogues of shipwrecks, floggings, persecutions, hatred, uh, opponents, all sorts of things going wrong in ministry. This perspective that it's not our party, that it's not about us, actually opens up the possibility for us to be very real with each other, very honest. I said before, I love to go and pick people's brains. I love it when I pick their brains and they're just absolutely honest. And they talk about how hard it is. They talk about the things they're struggling with. They talk about the things which haven't gone well. They talk about their weariness. They're real. How real are you? When you talk about living for the Lord, working for the Lord, how real are you? And when you do live for the Lord and work for the Lord, are you content for it to be Jesus' party and not yours? Is it okay with you if you're not appreciated and you're not thanked and no one notices and it doesn't work out and it's just hard yakka? Is that okay with you or not? We need to get used to the fact that New Covenant ministry is a strange kind of victory. It's Christ's victory, not ours. But when we see that, we'll never lose heart because Christ is triumphant. Christ is king. His kingdom is expanding. The church will be gathered. Jesus will come again. The new heaven and the new earth will descend. Christ is victorious. So new covenant ministry is a strange kind of victory. The next thing as we move on in this passage is new covenant ministry is also a very mixed kind of blessing. It's a mixed kind of blessing. Go back to the victory parade in the streets of Rome. The procession comes down the streets and as they come down, uh, incense is burned and is wafted through the streets. I think that's kind of the ancient equivalent of ticker tape. So, uh, so they're burning their incense and, and uh, there's, there's this lovely fragrance in the air. You, you don't only see the spectacle, you smell it. And in the victory procession of Christ, Paul says, there's also an aroma in the, in the air. This is the next imagery that Paul uses. So I continue in verse 14. Uh, Through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. Paul shifts to... Christian ministry with a word change. He moves from incense to aroma, from fragrance to aroma. And aroma is kind of a loaded word. It's it's an Old Testament sacrificial word. The Old Testament sacrifices were an aroma pleasing to the Lord. So now we have a picture, uh, 
Barrett suggests that the picture is this, that, that Christ is the sacrifice and the ministry of the apostles is the aroma, the, the incense, the fragrance going up from the offering of Christ. Gospel ministry is a sweet savour in the nostrils of God. God delights in the ministry of his word, in the spreading of the gospel. When you are engaged sharing the gospel with others, when some of you are engaged in preaching the gospel, when you are advancing and proclaiming the gospel, that is like aroma rising up and, and it's pleasing in the sight of God. God loves our ministry of the gospel. It reminds us that our ministry is for his pleasure. Ultimately, when you serve, when you share the gospel, when you teach, when you preach, you do it for God's pleasure. But it soon becomes apparent that amongst people, not everyone finds it pleasurable. Some do, some don't. For some, this is indeed a a sweet fragrance. They hear the gospel, they hear the good news, they hear the message of Jesus and they love it. For some people, it's it's life-changing. The the Holy Spirit starts to work in their heart and this message, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, starts to become the most precious message in the whole world. They can't get enough of it. They come to conferences on a Saturday in the middle of May just to hear more of the gospel because to them it's a sweet fragrance. But to others, it is a stench. Gospel ministry stinks. To some people, it's just a foul smell. They want nothing to do with it. Some people love it. Some find it utterly repugnant. I suppose we can think of analogies. French perfume. You know, maybe some of the ladies here love French perfume. You would be very happy if your hubby parted with a large sum of money to secure you some French perfume. Um, people, people love it. But you know, there are people who are allergic to it. I've known people who have terrible allergic reactions to any kind of fragrance, any kind of perfume. doesn't matter how expensive it was and whether it's from France or not, it'll just about kill them. Well, gospel ministry is like that. I don't care how well you preach, how well you witness. Some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it. We have a danger today that we think we've always got to be successful in ministering the gospel. And so if people aren't saved, if if people's lives aren't impacted by it, we think there must be something wrong with what we're doing. There must must be something wrong with my preaching, must be something wrong with our home group, must be something wrong with our church because people aren't being saved. Well, that's a dumb conclusion. The gospel is death as well as life. 
The gospel is a stench in many people's nostrils. Sometimes the best preaching will win you the most enemies. People have moved into spiritually dead churches, started to preach the gospel and they preach the place empty before they preach it full because the first bunch of people don't want to hear it. And it would be terrible to give up preaching when you're only halfway there, when you've preached it empty before you've preached it full. The Lord will bring around his word those who love it. The Lord will work by his spirit in people's hearts to draw them to the gospel. But at the same time, there'll be others who are driven away by the message of the gospel. Well, Paul says, who's up to a task like this? Who's sufficient for these things? We we realise now that it is an immense thing to be bearers of the gospel because we are bringing a message of life and death. It's going to have eternal consequences for people. Even share the gospel over the back fence, it has eternal consequences for the person you share it with. Who's up to it, Paul says in verse 16. We're not just hawking around goods for a quick sale. We're not selling Avon products. We're not trying to trump up a bit of support for ourselves or for our church. We're preaching a message of life and death. Who's sufficient for these things? That's what Paul then says in verse 17. Unlike so many, we don't peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, we speak before God with sincerity like man sent from from God. Isn't that interesting? We speak before God. You'd think he would say we speak before man with sincerity. But remember, our preaching is a fragrant offering to God. Every ministry, every Bible study you lead, every Sunday school class you take, it's, it's a fragrant ministry before God. You better do it with absolute dead earnestness before God and let the chips fall where they will. You see, at the end of the, end of the day, in all ministry, we have an audience of one. Some people may love you, some people may hate you, but what counts is what God thinks. The story is told of a, uh, a young violinist who was breaking into the elite circle of performers and giving his debut at the Carnegie Hall. He played seemingly wonderfully. And at the end of his performance, the audience burst into rapturous applause. Standing ovation. The young performer goes out to the wings and he breaks down, almost unconsolable. And some friends gather around and say, what's what's the matter? You played beautifully. Look, Look at the audience. They're cheering. They're impressed. He said, no. He says, in the front row is my maestro, my teacher, my master. And he wasn't impressed. He didn't stand. He didn't clap. 
and I was playing for him. See, it didn't matter that there were 2,000 people in raptures. He played for an audience of one. I have to remind myself of that today. You have to remind yourself of that every time you do something for the Lord. You play for one. So authentic ministry looks like a strange kind of triumph and a mixed kind of blessing. And in saying that, Paul is really making some pretty big claims. This is the clever thing about Paul. The more he talks himself down, actually the bigger the the claims are that he's making. He's claiming to to be engaged in a ministry of triumph even though everything's falling to pieces because the triumph is Christ's. He's claiming to have a ministry which is a, a sweet fragrance to God even though people hate it. So he's making some big claims and he now anticipates the objections that might come his way. People could well be thinking, oh yeah, now he's just blowing his own trumpet again. Look at the way he's talking up his ministry. Where are his credentials? These new ministers who have come in, they've brought letters of recommendation, they're commended. Where are Paul's credentials? Paul anticipates that, I think, with the question of chapter 3, verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And now he introduces us to the third reality of New Covenant ministry. Gospel ministry should read like a very special kind of letter. Gospel ministry should read like a very special kind of letter. The days of getting letters in the post are almost gone, aren't they? You only get bills now. I'm old enough to remember when it was fun going to the mailbox. Handwritten letters were always the good ones. My mum migrated from England to New Zealand. Throughout my childhood, I remember her loving it when there was what she called a blue one, an aerogram. Some of you old enough to uh, nod in the right direction. An aerogram, a letter from London, was always the best. Paul now speaks of something better than a blue one. He speaks of the very best handwritten letter ever composed. A letter written not by men, but by Jesus Christ. A letter written not with ink, which fades, but with the Holy Spirit. A letter written not on tablets of stone, like the Old Testament commandments were written but written on people's hearts. Paul says to the Corinthians, friends, you are my credentials. 
You are my letters of recommendation. Letters written by Jesus. Letters written on your hearts because you, through my ministry, have come to know Jesus and you bear testimony to the effectiveness of the gospel message. Isn't that a wonderful thing to be able to say? There might be troubles all around, there might be opponents, but what a wonderful thing to know that God has used you in the lives of other people. To know that there have been people saved because God worked through you when you shared the gospel with them. To know that some of your kids are going to heaven because you were a mum who prayed for them and you invested your life in them and you shared Jesus with them. To know that there are churches that have been built up and strengthened because you preached the gospel or you planted a church. What a wonderful thing it is to see people's lives turned around, to see people grow, to see people saved. We rightly treasure their stories. Often in ministry we don't get their stories. Another problem with ministry today, I think, is is there's this tendency to want everything to have measurable outcomes. We even talk in church circles these days about KPIs, key performance indicators. How can you have spiritual KPIs? Because so often the fruit is not measurable and it's not seen and it's not known because you don't know what's going on in the hearts of other people. And just occasionally God is very kind and he gives us a glimpse of some fruit that we didn't even know was there. I remember when I stood down from my last pastoral ministry in order to take up the work at the college and uh, just that act of leaving a church became an opportunity for a number of people to, to write little notes and talk to me and I found out of people who'd been saved during the course of that ministry I had absolutely no idea about it. People who, who bore testimony to it just having made a massive difference in the way they walked with the Lord. <laughs> Times like that you just, you just melt. I mean, it's just overwhelmingly beautiful and humbling. You can only read letters like that and feel very, very humbled. Paul continues in verse 4 or verse 5, not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent. You know that word competent that he uses there about three times in a row is the same word used back in chapter 2 verse 16 when he says, who is equal to such a task? Who is competent for this? Who is sufficient? And now he says, well, God's made us sufficient. God's made us competent. And sometimes we get to read the letters on people's hearts and we think, oh man, that is just 
so wonderful. That should never go to our heads because God has done it. God's been pleased to use us in all our weakness and somehow speak through us into the heart of another. Richard Baxter has a lovely little phrase in his writings. He says, I was but a pen in God's hand. I was but a pen in God's hand. But if you've been a pen in God's hand in someone's life, then read the letter and enjoy it. Because isn't that what gospel ministry is really about? It's about seeing lives changed, people saved, people taken on to maturity in Jesus and then using their lives to serve him as well. Letters like that are the best credentials for any ministry. We train people at a theological college and give them degrees after a few years. But really, what, is, what does a degree mean? You know, a degree is not a, it's not a great set of credentials. The real credentials in Christian ministry are the lives that have been changed and impacted as God has spoken through you. So these are the first three realities that Paul has chatted to us about as we've had coffee with him this morning. Well, we didn't get the coffee, but we got the conversation. If you're engaged in ministry, expect it to be a strange kind of triumph because it's not your party. Expect it to be a very mixed kind of blessing. A sweet savour to some and a stench to others. And expect it to produce some of the most precious letters that you will ever read because gospel ministries ultimately about God changing people's lives. Let's pray, shall we? Loving Father, thank you for what you've taught us from this passage. Thank you that in your wisdom you inspired by your spirit the Apostle Paul to write these words so that we might reflect on them and understand something of the nature of New Covenant ministry. But we know that it's not enough for us to understand the nature of New Covenant ministry. We need to be prepared to live this way. So please take away our pride. Take away our self-focus and the desire for it to be our party. Take away our desire to always be successful to realise that the gospel cuts two ways and take away our desire to have any kind of credentials other than the real credentials of you having used us in people's lives. And Father, we do pray that you would use us. Pray that every man and woman here today would be a pen in your hand as you write the gospel on people's hearts. Take our gifts, 
our opportunities, our time, our personalities. And please use us, Father, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.